Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Uncovered. This is Behram Kazi. You can find me on Twitter at Def Mango. And with me, I have Jared Kimber. You can find him everywhere and anywhere. So, Jared, the Ashes, well, quite an anticlimactic end, you'd have to say. What a tournament it was building up to be, or well, series rather. And then, you know, the Manchester Rain played spoiled sport and uh, washed out the Old Trafford test. Or some would argue that maybe it was Piers Morgan's tears. So, we'll, we'll get more into that. But ultimately, would you say that Pat Cummins' pragmatic unit was good enough to defuse the baseball threat? Um, I actually think England got better with baseball throughout the series. And so I think at the t- at early on, they were trying to go to Australia into this aggressive style. If we play this way, Australia will, will, will be sucked in. By the end, they were like, no, we don't need to do that. We're just going to play our style and we are going to do things in our way. And hopefully uh, that will mean that we will win. Unfortunately for them, they already lost two tests, right? So, you know, they were just too far behind and they certainly made errors. I don't think... It, I, I think you can make a fairly big argument that they are the... They've performed better than Australia in this Ashes. But you could also make a fairly big argument there's not that much between these two teams. And Australia hasn't... I don't think Australia's even played anywhere near their potential and, and England certainly gets some of that credit. Um, what I would say is that when they came out on day four we had play on day four didn't we i'm trying to remember what yes we did yeah um we we had play on day four and the the ball didn't move around that much or anything Mm. uh you know it it was it wasn't what we expected but what i would say there is that manas and mitch one guy wasn't in the series and one guy who wasn't a factor in the series just played absolutely beautiful normal pragmatic cricket there was a couple of shots there where they were still attacking um I think Manus probably regrets his shot a little bit, although that ball bounced maybe more than you would have expected. Um, mm-hmm. But Joe Root was bowling pretty well. They should, probably should have just shut up shop against Joe Root at that stage. He was getting weird bounce that Moen Ali wasn't, but Moen Ali was bowling well also. Um, and so what you had is maybe a situation where previous Australian teams might have looked at that differently. But look at Mitch Marsh. Was he what, 30 or 80 balls or 90 mm-hmm. balls? You know, that again, that's not Mitch Marsh. England were bowling very straight and very full to him. And I've said before that they generally don't bowl straight and full to him and everyone else does and they get him out. He managed to handle that as well, right? So I think there was quite a few different... Um, I think there were quite a few different ways of uh, that Australia had played really, really well. Having, having that said, there's still miles behind in the game, right? Like if it goes the full five days... You would yeah. assume that as well as Australia were playing, they would still have lost massively. Um, so that's really um, 
that's that's what happens. But it is the rainiest cricket ground in the world. I don't know if that's technically true, but it's had the most washed out days um, of enough. cricket in the world and by distance. So, uh, you know, if you go down 2 0 and one of the test matches coming up at the end is Old Trafford, like for, we all drove, you know, the majority of the cricket media drove south afterwards. Mm-hmm. Have a look at the Twitter f- uh, feeds of all these people just putting up photos of. Uh, clear skies. My wife was sending me photos from London yesterday. Manchester, <laughs> Manchester just gets a lot of rain, right? And yeah. uh, you, you know, you heard all sorts of things like, "Well, if the hundred wasn't here, we'd play in August." Yeah, it rains in August in Manchester as well, just <laughs> so that everyone's aware. It rains, it rains all the way through the year. There's no rainy season in, in Manchester. There's Manchester. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've all heard that. Anyone who follows football as well would know that because if you follow Manchester United or Manchester City, you'll see lots of rain. Just a bit further on that same point, you know, since rain played a major role in deciding the fate of this test match and ultimately helped Australia retain the urn, Joe Root had a suggestion. He said that maybe, you know, if the fact that we have daylight till 10 p.m. in the future, we could potentially play up until that point just to make sure that the overs are complete. Now, I understand the suggestion. I might even be for the suggestion, but... This is not the first time rain has washed out a test match in England, right? Why is this suggestion coming now? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think a lot of people have pointed out that when England have been on the benefactor of rain, that we haven't heard as many of these. The Joe Root thing is mad, right? It's hmm. utterly, in, it's insanity. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, firstly, this whole thing, they always say this at a show in, in England. They always say, oh, it's sunny until um, 10 o'clock. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. You couldn't play cricket at 9.30 at night. That's just hmm. a stupid thing to say. There would be, it would be completely unsafe to face anyone at 90 miles an hour at 9.30 at night. The second hmm. one is, well, uh, so Joe Root is more than happy with Jimmy Anderson getting there at 11 a.m. and still bowling at 10 p.m.? What? Hmm. Right? The That's workloads true. don't make any sense. And if you want to get more overs in, I don't know, maybe don't bowl nine and a half overs an hour, right? Like, yeah. it, it's just... it it. And the whole overrate thing is a different argument, and we can talk about that all the way through. Look, I think there are things that cricket could be more flexible on. You know, mm. it was, I remember, I'm trying to think who it was, but I was talking to someone yesterday, it might have been Jeremy Cody at, at the ground, mm. and I said to him, it's lunch. And he looks at me, he goes, what? I said, I've called lunch. <laughs> and it just, uh, it's such a stupid thing to even think about. But of course, in cricket, it was raining, we called lunch. Um, I don't think it, in that case, it, cost us any overs but it could have right and and we look at we, we just we factor in all these different things the truth is though you can't play cricket until 10 p.m at night in pakistan right no absolutely not right and so but, so so in some countries should we start at 8 a.m right mm. and, and 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 the truth is that there is no perfect answer for all this maybe investing in the pink ball would be better uh the mm. overroads uh, overroads overrates thing has become <laughs> a huge huge issue because the game of international cricket is so different to every other level of cricket now, and T20 mm. franchises to a certain extent as well, that now it's not about teams bowling slow, although sometimes they do. It is mm. the batters are involved, the umpires are involved, the concussion substitute uh, is involved, mm. the, the stupid spider cami thing is involved. Yeah. You know, all these different things that happen in that level of cricket that you know, that that go to this. But we could bowl more overs in the day. And England could have bowled their overs quicker, bowled more hmm. to Australia and, and allowed that. They kept going on and on about, what, are you, is the crowd not entertained? Well, <laughs> sometimes you run out of time if you slow down the over rate, right? And, and that's how these things go. It is, I mean, Joe, let's just park Joe Root's nonsense. 
the mm-hmm. reserve day thing. There's no, we can't do reserve days. I don't know why anyone who's ever worked in cricket would think we could do reserve days when literally we have back-to-back test matches. Like it's mm. a non-starter from from that perspective. I, I, what I do think is that there should there could be a flexibility. There could be mm. making sure that teams actually bowl their overs a little bit quicker, so we don't lose as much cricket when it rains. And all these mm. sorts of things are certainly things that we could look to go ahead with. But I'll say the same thing I say every time, Baron, when someone brings this up. It doesn't matter because clearly it isn't a big enough issue for anyone to fix. Because we hear about overrates, we hear about rain, we hear about dew, all these different things. If they're really that big a deal, wouldn't cricket just fix them? So, mm. I, I mean maybe you could argue and use my my catch-all argument for everything in cricket is no one's actually in charge so there's no way you can fix any of these things (laughs) but realistically i do think that there would be a much bigger movement towards this but if you're only going to talk about how you should get extra hours out of a day uh when you've lost the test match because of rain no everyone's just gonna make fun of you right that's what's happened everyone has made fun of them i don't know what happened with piers morgan i don't care about piers morgan (laughs) i mean obviously i refuse to be on his tv show i blocked him on twitter just preemptively (laughs) Um, I don't know if he's ever tweeted me, but just in case he ever does by accident. I've got no interest in Piers Morgan. I've got no interest in BBC staff suddenly worrying about, you know, mm. extra days cricket. I've got no interest about Joe Root and his 10-hour thing. We had They've had plenty of chances when I've covered so many test matches in England, which has affected both teams, and no one ever gave a shit before. It's an Ashes. Mm. They lost it. Oh, it's the weather's fault. Oh, it's cricket. Cricket <laughs> should have done this. Yeah, I, I don't care. Jog on. You know, you shouldn't have gone down 2 nil. <laughs> yeah, I'll just fill you in a bit on the Piers Morgan bit. He isn't pleased one bit. He wasn't happy with Patty Cummins and said that I wouldn't have come for like a press conference or talk to the media if I had won the Ashes in this manner. But you'd well, be glad to. to know that people... So, so, so that, that is the first thing. Piers Morgan doesn't know yeah. anything. All right? Almost mm-hmm. any time he talks on a topic, it's really important. There's a lot of young people out here that, that follow mm-hmm. our, uh, us on, on, on social media and on YouTube and everything else. And... They might like Piers Morgan. It's really important to know that Piers Morgan doesn't know anything. He's not an expert in anything. And, you know, you'd have to ask whether, I don't know, we could make a phone hacking joke here if we wanted to. But as far as I'm aware, he's not an expert in anything at all. So when he says, if I was Pat Cummins, I'm going to come out. Well, Pat Cummins has to come out. Of course. That is what you do at the end of the game. He didn't come out. I I saw him because the whole thing sort of happened in front of me. There was, there was, uh, he did about three or four interviews before he went mm. into the, the actual press conference itself. He just looked like a dude doing his job, right? Of just like, yeah, yeah, you know, we're here and blah, blah, blah. Got a little bit wet walking out to the Channel 9 um, cameras and everything. Mm. Just, again, Piers Morgan doesn't know anything. And so, it, you know, he, of course he's going to say something wrong because he doesn't, he, he, this isn't his yeah. job. This isn't his knowledge. He's just, you know, wind. <laughs> yeah, well, you'll be pleased to know that people are absolutely taking the piss out of him on Twitter, myself included. And there's this tweet that resurfaced that back in 2013, he was actually happy that rain helped England in a game. So there's, you know, that double standard. But anyway, let's actually talk about the cricket. You mentioned Manus Lavushain. He had eight innings in this English summer prior to this Old Trafford test and he hadn't crossed 50. And come Old Trafford, he scored 50 in the first innings and then a very, very important ton for Australia in the second. And even if this game had a little bit more time, there was an argument to be made that Marnus had maybe saved Australia. So how would you rate his improvement as a batter in conditions where he really struggled this time? Yeah, I actually thought he batted quite well in Headingley as well. Um, I remember seeing him there and going, oh, he's turned a corner. He's worked this out. And it's really weird because his run of bad form, I think, goes over 
couple of different locations, doesn't it? So mm. it's not as if there was one plan that was getting to him. I know some of it's just regression to the mean. Like he mm. was dropped a lot. And so at a certain point, he's going to get, you know, caught more early on in his innings. These things happen. The thing is, we focus on it with Manus. This would have happened with Bradman. Right? It would have mm. happened with George Headley. It probably happened with Sachin. But we now have the information and we can track these things a little bit better. But, but I think there was a little bit of regression from the mean there. What I thought with England specifically is they were bowling very full outside off stump. Almost what teams used to do to Gary Balance um, mm. and trapping him uh, trapping him in a way that he's sort of half coming forward to very full balls that are obviously moving more because they're bowled so full and everything else. And then he, he's just got to a point now where he's just letting the ball come to him a little bit more. He's not searching for that delivery. And that seems to be the big difference with England. Also, they didn't bowl much Moe Alley to him uh, mm. you know, early on and he went out very cheaply to Moe Alley twice. I was a bit surprised once they realized that the pitch wasn't doing anything on that day four that they didn't go to Moe much earlier. I think Moe only bowled when it was dark um, mm. and the pitch wasn't doing anything. They could have used Moe well before then. Um, so, so yeah, I think that from that perspective, I, I just thought Manus was a little bit better in that area where England have been causing him trouble. Hmm. But, you know, it's he had gone through a run. If, if you have a look, it's probably very similar to what happened to Mike Hussey. Mm-hmm. Mike Hussey comes into Test Cricket, makes a lot of runs early on. Uh, I don't know how many drops he has, uh, you know, again, <laughs> to, to, to go on that theme. But I think if you go back and have a look at Mike Hussey, teams didn't really know how to bowl to him for a while and sometimes that happens if you know if you look at the difference between uh someone like zach crawley and renshaw mm. and manus labashem you know zach crawley and renshaw very talented players but very l- limited to what they're good at they're very good at these mm-hmm. things and outside of that not as much and there was always a weakness for both of them you look at manus by the time he made it to test cricket the second time uh, so after he played in pakistan as a leggy um mm-hmm. you know oh uae as a leggy yeah uae pakistan, was it yeah um by the time he comes in, he's a very well-rounded player. There aren't a lot of issues within his game. Hmm. And so I remember uh, the the Mike Hussey plans that England had years ago about, you know, that got leaked to the press. And you're looking at it going, they don't know how to bowl to him. These plans sort of tell you that they don't know what they're going to do. And I think at times that's been the case with Manus, whereas now everyone's seen him. And he's made so yeah. many runs and we've seen him against spin and we've seen him, you know, special fielding positions for him. And I think what happened early was he was treated a little bit like mini, mini, mini Smith, right? Mm. And there are obviously some of his peculiarities are a little bit like Smith and he does yeah. have some of Smith's game, but he's not, he doesn't actually bat in the same way that Smith does. And I think that, you know, you wouldn't bowl sort of four stump half volleys to Smith because he would Hmm. literally just punish you all day whereas that's what England were doing with Manus so I do think it was a little bit different the way that they needed to attack him but um, uh, I thought he he looked outstanding in in that Uh, you know for Australia obviously the washout helps and and everything Hmm. else but I think they needed to see Manus bounce back a little bit it's been I mean you talked about the was it eight innings where he hadn't passed 50 I think it was overall was it 17 or 18 innings? yeah probably something like that because you know what i mean they needed they needed to see it again especially because mm. they're about to lose warner yeah. no one knows how long kawaj is going for they're starting to they're starting to be whispers of steve smith retiring right mm. now now kawaj and smith may not retire warner's the only one we know but mm. if you lose two of those guys yeah. manus is even more important at, 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 that, at that stage. He becomes the most important batter in that team. It's basically him and Head, and Head, that's further down the order. Mm. May not come up the order anyway. So 
it's a very, very interesting one from that perspective. So seeing him do well, and we know it was at these third hundred overseas, I want to say, first hundred in England, you know, he's got mm-hmm. one of those Mahila, Jay Wardner, David Warner type records at the moment. Mm-hmm. I think there's plenty to say that maybe, you know, in England, he, we, I don't think we had any issues with his batting in England, even if he struggled at the start of this series. We'd seen him bat well in England before, but he needs to make runs away from home because otherwise he's only of so much use, right? Yeah, and if you look at his home average versus away average, there's a big discrepancy. And interesting you point out how him and Smith are quite dissimilar, actually. Also the fact that Manus can manage to sleep during a test match before his batting. <laughs> and Smith just can't catch a break in that regard. But anyway, let's talk a bit about England. Let's talk a bit about Zach Crawley. Now, very, very interesting career. Has played 38 tests or 36 mm-hmm. tests, something like that. Like that. Didn't average 30 prior to this test match, but in this test, he scored that 182 ball, 189. Was chancy at times. You know, he did connect those booming drives uh, more often than not, but there were times where he slashed hard and it went over gully or over slips and something like that. He was fortunate as well. But let's just say that Crawley in his career probably crawled. And then in this Ashes series, he walked. And then in the Old Trafford test, I see what you're doing there. Zach Grant. <laughs> uh, look, I so, thought he had a really good Ashes so far. I'm look, I don't know. I mean, if Jared, he's he's the leading run scorer of this Ashes now, so we have. Yeah, to but I mean, before that innings, I thought he'd done yeah. his job. So hmm. from that perspective, I thought he'd upset the Australians. I think now I didn't. This was only something. I think someone might put this up in our Patreon, but it's becoming you know more well known. We talked about it a lot on SCN, where he has a very poor average against. Uh, Boland, uh, Mitchell Marsh, and Cameron Green, and a great average mm. against everyone else, um, and that includes Stark, Hazelwood, and um, and Cummins, and that's very interesting, right? To mm. to start with, and it does sort of follow the loop of, especially you look at Mitch Marsh and he and Boland, they're really more county type bowlers, and mm. so from that perspective, he doesn't like the guys who nibble around and wobble the ball. They much prefer the ninety miles an hour slamming onto the middle of his bat. That's originally what England said about him, to be fair. They said they thought he would struggle when the ball, you know, you put Muhammad Abbas on and he might not make a run, right? Um, but, you know, he has to face Unric Nokia and they suddenly they back him. Hmm. He's incredibly flawed, as I, as I said earlier. And he knows that. I think there was a press conference after he made the 100, or maybe it was something I was re- reading from before, where Brendan McCullum said to him, you're not Ben Stokes and you're not Joe Root. There's always hmm. going to be a ball with your name on it. And so you have to bat with that in mind. And I, I I think that's very clever coaching because they've tried to fix his flaws. Hmm. He's getting older now. Maybe by the time he's 27, 28, he might have fixed some of them. But they might have two, three, four more years of him being a very flawed player in the way, you know, the way he attacks balls outside of stump. We're talking about when it's the fifth stump line, slightly well, on a good length, but maybe slightly shorter than you bowl to a normal ball, a bowler on a, a batter on a good length. So maybe instead of, you know, six meters, you probably bowl closer to seven meters uh, to mm-hmm. him. Uh, and we know he's going to nick off, right? Yeah. And, and, and it's not even his only flaw. I mean, he drags the ball back onto the stumps a lot because he has this angled blade. You talked about his luck. Uh, what was there, four, five times where it looked like he was going to hit the ball back onto his stumps? At one stage, he yeah. was almost bowled and caught behind on the same ball. <laughs> um, you know, but... What he what he does is because he scores in a way that takes away opposition bowlers' best length, hmm. right? He really is a fascinating cricketer from that point of view because I do think eventually everyone is going to bowl the right length to Zach Crawley, and then he's going to have to work out if he can, uh, you know, change. But at the hmm. moment, I, I went back and I had a look at Cummins and Hazelwood and Stark bowling to him. They're bowling their best ball to him, and that doesn't bother him as much. 
Hmm. Right. It's a really fascinating thing of they just think, well, we're the best bowler, you know, we're the better bowler. We're just going to bowl our best ball over and over again. Whereas actually Pat Cummins, if he bowled, as I said, a meter shorter, right. Hmm. And a little, and a little bit wider, instead of aiming into the top of off stump, which is where Crawley wants it, bowl it at fifth stump, bowl it at sixth stump. Uh, it would be very, and Hazelwood could do this more naturally, hmm. uh, just because of the way that he bowls. I actually think they would have success against them. So, have teams been planning that much for Crawley so far? Probably not. The one big difference between the series is I think England have uh, prepared brilliantly for the Australian team. And mm. I think Australia is playing, they think they're a little bit better of a side, which is more than fair uh, on paper, um, and that they are just going to play their best cricket and that will work. Well, mm. you could argue it has. We could also argue that, you know, if it didn't rain, it might be too all now and they'd be going yeah. into the oval test and England would be going in as a well-oiled machine, knowing exactly what they need to bowl to each player uh, and exactly how to attack each bowler. And Australia would be sitting there going, what's that Crawley keep hitting us for four all the time? So I yeah. do think from that perspective that um, Crawley's been assisted. But but the, the major thing is, and this, you know, in England's big thing was that Zach Crawley could hit pace bowling. But the mm. other thing that they loved about him is because he's tall and because he can drive on the up. And those two things, you do need both of those to go together. He has the ability to turn good length from bowlers into something else. Mm. And because he has some power, he will hit through the line. Look, he's still averaging 31. And we've, you mm. know, we've just seen, I think that was the third test he'd ever made over 100 runs in a test match, right? He doesn't make yeah. a lot of runs. And I didn't see anything in that innings that makes me think that he's going to be more consistent at test level than before. If anything, Teams might be more afraid of him now and prepare even more diligently when they go up against him. But having said that, that's kind of what England have him in the team for. For one every six mm. tests, he's going to do that. And they know they'll get a bunch of 40s to 60s off him that usually mm. will be at a decent strike rate that will put everyone off, take away a bit of that new ball. You know, him and Duckett are very flawed. If England had mm. proper test openers, Duckett and, and Crawley would not be there. They don't believe they have proper test openers. And if you're uh, as old and as jaded as I am, you know, we lived through <laughs> Sibley and Stoneman and <laughs> Lees and Burns. Mm. And those guys all averaged 28 to 32 anyway. If you're going to do it, yeah. you might as well do it with someone who's going to whack it occasionally. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And it's interesting how you brought up that had we had a full game of cricket, odds were that Australia would have lost this one. But then again, what were the odds on Zach Crawley being the leading yeah. run scorer after four test matches, right? If you did make that bet, now's the time to cash out, guys. This is exactly the time to cash out. But anyway, let's uh, talk a bit more about England. They, of course, had a lot of the, a lot of stuff going right for them in this test match. Lots of performers. Mm. Moeen at three performed, scored 50. Stokes scored a 50. So did Brooke. And then Mark Wood was bowling absolute thunderbolts. And the way he got Travis head out was quite comical as well. And then Wokes with the Pfeiffer. It just seemed like a lot of those things were coming together for England. And that's exactly where the rain gods decided to take a massive dump on them or something. So... It was really a massive that... dump, by the way. I had a 10-minute walk yeah. at one stage on <laughs> the night of day four, and we got back to our hotel, uh, our mm. Airbnb, and we had to um, hang up everything. We, mm. You know, literally got down to my undies is how wet it was. <laughs> it, I mean, if, if you're thinking, oh, you know, some of the rain that we saw in the last couple of days mm. was absolutely biblical. Yeah, well, I just wanted to ask you that is there maybe a part of you that feels some sympathy for England and also the fact that Ben Stokes' declaration at Edgebaston is all the more relevant now and had he perhaps not declared, even if they would have manufactured a draw, this series would still be alive? 
I think that had they played the kind of cricket they played in the last two test matches, in all four mm. test matches, they probably would be winning the series. Mm. I think they got sucked up in – I mean, we talked about it. We've done the podcast about it, right? Yeah. They got sucked up in their own – I don't know, what would you call it? Their own bullshit, their own cult. And mm. realistically, they don't need to do any of that. They, yeah. they are, they've been a smart – even when they were terrible, Baron, they're mm. a smart team. Right. They're not, you know, if you don't have anyone who can bat in your top three and, you know, your five, six, and seven are all going to average about 35, mm. you're only ever going to be so good. But even then, they were a very smart team. They've managed to milk the most out of their, their better players. They've managed to make people like Ducker and Crawley have an impact, even if they're not mm. good players, throwing Moe and Alley up the order and all this sort of stuff. Right. They, they've been able to sort of slightly twist things to make it better for them. Early in the series, I didn't feel like they were quite doing that. Early in the series, like they're declaring on day one, it doesn't, it didn't need to happen, hmm. right? They could have made another 40 runs. Who knows? It's Joe Root there, where how yeah. far they could have taken that, right? They could have put mo- much more pressure on Australia at that mm-hmm. stage. Um, and then later on, this latest declaration is the interesting one because you could argue, I would argue that that's when they needed to be more baseball. Mm-hmm. And they actually went way too long. And, and yeah. they didn't need to go on that long. And it probably, as again, cost them um, a big chance of being able to do that. Although, having said that, I do think the pitch had flattened out massively. So I, I think it was a mistake, but I'm not sure it's a mistake that ultimately would have cost them the game. Um, but it certainly was a mistake. So they're still making mistakes, fine. Hmm. But I do think that they have improved a lot during the series. Whereas Australia played pretty much the same in the first three test matches. Hmm. The fourth test match, they batted fine. It's just that no one went on to get that big score. And that's the difference mm. between them making 450, um, you know, and, and 300. And if they'd made 450, the whole the whole face of that test match would have been different. Even if England would have played their great innings afterwards, they would have done it from a position of weakness, not a position of strength. And everyone knew that was a good batting pitch. So I don't think Australia have played that much better or worse all the way through, whereas I think mm. England have just been slowly getting better all the way mm-hmm. through. And yeah. I think they've been reacting to Australia. You know, the Moeen Ali thing is an attacking move based on the fact that they've had injuries and that they don't really have a re- replacement that they trust. Mm. Whereas the Cameron Green move, and I'm definitely not against it, but once you did that, it's a defensive um, mm. decision. Again, made because they don't have the best thing. And I think that both of those things suit each team. But the Mm. difference really is that England went in with a slightly more balanced side just because Mm. that they they backed uh, their players in that particular way. So, look, I I think England have have played really good cricket. You know, I did the the video that you've probably seen or the the article uh, about um, uh, how hard it is to come from 3-2 down. Uh, sorry, right. three two down from two nil down to win two nil down to three two. Yeah, <laughs> and the only person who's ever done it is basically Bradman, who had the mm. series of his life, and he had timeless tests available. W- when you look at all the teams that were better than the opposite, and the- I think there was only two of them that were clearly mm-hmm. better than the opposition. Uh, you know, and in their situations, they just ran out of time because that's what happens. You only need one mm. thing to go against you, and suddenly, you know, it doesn't work for you. So. England are, I would say England have played marginally better cricket, but I also mm-hmm. would say that Australia haven't actually reached their, their height. So you, you, it was interesting. You were talking about, you know, who knows what would have happened in that third innings of Australia. 
Right. Mitch Marsh didn't look like he was going anywhere. Cameron Green looked mm-hmm. a little bit more shaky. They still had Alex Carey. Mitchell Stark has obviously batted quite well at times. Yeah. You know, Pat Cummins. In this test. In yeah, this in very this test, test, yeah. Stark batted really well. Uh, 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 Pat Cummins, obviously, at edge Baston, right? Mm. Let's say Mitch Marsh makes 100. Um, Cameron mm. Green makes a 50. And, you know, Carey and 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 um, Stark and, and Cummins all, all make 100, 120. We're going to feel very, very differently. We only mm. saw them... We saw them bat where they gave away their wickets, but they didn't bat terribly in that first innings. Mm. They just gave away a bunch of starts when they when they should have capitalized on them. Uh, and then they bowled, and I thought England v- did very very well, but on a pitch where you should bat very very well, mm. right? Um, Fair enough, you know, and and had a little bit of luck. So again, it's not as if I think England definitely had the better of that Test match, and they have had slightly mm. the better of the entire series. But I wasn't, I didn't come away like. Like I saw some people being like, "This is an injustice." Like England is really, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure that's true. I, I just don't yeah. think it's true. Um, and and so I think you have to give England all the credit in the world. But the truth is, whether it's your fault or someone else's fault, and England had the better of the conditions in those first two Test matches, they couldn't take either of them. And when they didn't take either of those Test matches, and that is the situation that they put themselves in. That weather or one fluke, you know, it, it might have been weather. It might have been Pat Cummins taking a seven for, right? It mm. might have been Steve Smith making a triple hundred. All yeah. these things are on the table, right? It, it doesn't matter what it is. These things can happen. It could have, you know, we Adelaide all out for 36, right? Australia have the ability to still do that to anyone if, if mm. at, at any time. And so I do think from that perspective that, you know, England never got themselves into position where they were safe in the series. And that's why ultimately they haven't won it. Yeah, no, that checks out. One final thought, of course, going into the Oval Test. Uh, of course, England still have pride on the line. They could level the series and 2-2 would be a respectable result at least. Now, we saw the ball stay ridiculously low at times at Old Trafford. And that's the reason Joe Root caught out, who was looking great at 84. And Stuart Broad, who also, by the way, took his 600th test scalp in this test, also got a few of those uh, to go really low. And I'm wondering if this would be a factor that might come into play at the Oval. And just because of that, would that put a lot of onus on someone like Stuart Broad or Josh Hazelwood, who didn't look too good at the start, but then ultimately ended up with the Pfeiffer? Could this be a factor? And just the fact that Todd Murphy, you know, is the only other spinner available. Should Australia be playing him? It's fair. I mean, I'm not sure what Cameron Green gave them in this test match other than peace mm. of mind. Um, I, I still think Cameron Green's a fantastic cricketer. I've got I've got no issue with him playing again. But at the moment, it, it you know, the, the truth when it comes to selection is that both of these teams are very banged up. So Pat Cummins looked exhausted when he was bowling to England. Yeah. Um, Mitchell Stark, held his shoulder, his hamstring, and his knee at various times mm. during that innings. Like, he was not he was not doing particularly well. Um, uh, Mitch Marsh couldn't... They didn't bowl him early on when he probably should have bowled to Zach Crawley, and mm. then later on he had the ankle thing. You know, yeah. we don't even know who's healthy and who's not at this stage. Mm. I, I would think at the moment they, they might have thought, oh, we got away with that, but maybe we'll need Murphy again next time. Mm. Um, but they weren't. I don't think they were sitting there going, "Well, Murphy's going to be a huge difference for us either." Mm. Um, but you know, the oval we have seen Surrey certainly leave out a spinner quite a bit. Look, it's an it's uh-huh. an interesting surface uh, that one. Mm. Maybe they'll have to take a look at it. But I think I'll, I think for both of these teams at the moment, they're going to be looking at whose body works and whose body doesn't work. Um, and perhaps England will take slightly bigger risks just because you know of the difference, or, or a because of the way they play. And Australia mm. might be slightly more pragmatic. Now that could you. The funny thing is, everyone's like, "Oh, they're so defensive with Cameron Green." 
quite an attacking move as well not to have a spinner mm. right yeah. it's like you know we, we just think we'll be able to blow through england and they didn't um you know will they go actually we need to take the more defensive option now and we need the spinner to come in so it, it it's a fascinating uh one coming up to the next test yeah, no, I would certainly make room for Todd Murphy because I was looking at the Australian bowlers and they looked absolutely exhausted, like you said. One final thought, I suppose, Jimmy Anderson to play at the Oval or, or not to play at the Oval? I thought he bowled well at times mm. in Old Trafford. Control, I he the, had a lot of control. Yeah, I thought he's hit the ball uh, through a little bit as well. Um, look, the, the Jimmy Anderson question is a much bigger question because essentially there's three ways of dealing with it. The first mm. one is to say, Jimmy, you're done. Sorry, mate. Mm. Uh we think you're wonderful, but what you're done, and we want to try someone else at the Oval. The second way is to say to him, we think you're done. Do you want to play your last game at the Oval? And I suppose the other way is maybe more the, the way that, well, there's, there's two other ways. One is just let it keep going as it is because he's Jimmy Anderson, too big to drop. Or the way mm-hmm. that I would do it is go back to him and say, look, if you say to us that this is your last test, we will give it to you at the Oval. We will put a picture of you up on every chair and everyone will have a face mask. It will be the Jimmy Anderson game. Mm-hmm. However, if you if you say if you say um you want to keep playing that's mm. fine we will pick you on the oval if we think you're out in our best five bowlers or four bowlers mm. from then on in exactly the same when we think you're in our best bowlers you get that you'll get a reduced contract we won't play you as much but you you maintain your fitness we'll pick you when we think it's right to pick you and i think if you know those four options are far too big just to go you you can't pretend he's a normal player right Mm. you have to be honest at this point and you have to say jimmy anderson is is going to be a player who is um england is going to have to make a very very big decision on i'm not sure if a back-to-back test match is the best time to make that decision particularly when josh tong looked so good but anyway that's enough for the ashes we'll be taking a break and coming back with india versus the west indies another rain affected game but yeah see you on the other side this is baram kazi and jared kimber on the uncovered podcast see you soon NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. All right. We're back at the Uncovered podcast. I'm Baram Kazi. I tweet at Def Mango. You can find me on Twitter over there. And Jared Kimber is with me. Of course, he's everywhere himself. Now, over to the Trinidad Test Match, Port of Spain and the Queen's Park Oval. India got off to a great start in that Test Match. Scored 430-odd in the first innings. Virat Kohli got his 76 done and a bunch of, oh well, 76th international run, not test done. And a bunch of other batters did really well. Yashasvi Jaiswal got another 50 in his second innings in test cricket. Rohit got twin 50s in this test match. Ashwin Jadeja got 50s as well, uh, as did Ishan Kishin, who was quite blistering with the bat in the second. But they find themselves in a big, bit of a pickle over here because Craig Bats- Brathwaite inspired the West Indies to bat time. He scored 75 off 235 deliveries, which was a very signature sort of knock for him. I was going to say, that, I don't think that's him batting time. He thought he was yeah. actually had a good strike rate. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think he really inspired the, the rest to play that way as well. And, you know, he needed those runs. He hadn't had a good outing in Test cricket for a while. But effectively, what all of that has meant is that last day in Trinidad, Port of Spain, 
we have the West Indies needing 280-ish runs, if I'm not wrong. But more importantly, there's rain and it doesn't look like we're going to get a lot of play. And they might just draw this test match, which you would say is as good as a win for the West Indies at this point. Oh, you'd take that, wouldn't you? 100%. Yeah. I, I, haven't, um, <laughs> I haven't done my World Test Championship piece yet, but there's no way I would have projected two wins for the West Indies. Uh, sorry, mm. two wins. A draw for the West Indies in a two-test series, right? Yeah. So uh, they, will, they will take that and they will run with it. And I you know, look forward to Piers Morgan being just as upset about this <laughs> test match as he, as he was in the other one. Um, but yes, uh, look, I think... Uh, what did Brathwaite... He made 70-odd in the first innings. He made 20-odd in this one. You know, mm-hmm. they got Chandra Paul. I haven't seen much of Kurt McKenzie. I know he's already out. They've got Blackwood, um, Athanas, De Silva, Holder. There's a few guys. And not to mention Roach. Roach is a very mm-hmm. good blocker when he wants to be as well. Yeah. So if it does stop raining, they've actually got some, some cattle that can do defensive batting there. So... Uh, I thought it was interesting the way that India went about this uh, test match. They attacked very hard in the first innings. Mm. Probably, what was their strike rate in the first innings? It slowed down a little bit. So it was three and a half runs and over. But, yeah. you know, Rohit and um, and Jaiswal both had sixes like early on in their innings, if I remember mm-hmm. if I remember watching it correctly. There was a great comment on, on Crick Info or Crick Buzz. I think it was on Crick Info from a fan who said that they were switching between the two games. And I think like, they saw that Bairstow had hit a six, right? So they flicked yeah. over to watch Bairstow hit a six. When they did that, Jaiswal hit a six. So they went back and mm. then Bairstow hit like two sixes. Then they went back and then Rohit <laughs> hit a six or something. It was an incredible moment of Test cricket to just tell you how much things had changed, that there were mm-hmm. literally being sixes hit everywhere in Test cricket at the same time. Um, but yeah, I think India probably put themselves in a fairly good position. Um, the only thing looking back was that probably because Virat. Uh, was struggling a little bit with his scoring rate. And, uh, you know, it would have been nice if Rohit or Virat or Jadeja had, you know, kicked on. Mm. And we're we're, we're judging this by Basball standards, right, rather than normal standards. But, you know, the the fact that they had started quite aggressive and sort of paired it back a little bit and ended up at three Mm. and a half runs and over probably cost them some time. Whether it's cost Mm -hmm. them enough time to worry about them losing the game, you'd have to go through the whole game and have a look at everything that has happened. Um, and they certainly, I just want to have a look, what was it in the second innings? They went at what, seven and a half runs in and over. So they yeah, tried like to, that. they weren't pissing about in the second innings, were they? Right. Mm. Like um, that is, I, I know I saw some arguments online about people. I think it was a Caribbean cricket uh, podcast and um, Crick crazy Johns having this mm. discussion about, you know, whether it's baseball inspired. Well, I mean, it is baseball inspired <laughs> because we've never seen a team try and score at seven and a half runs and over in, mm. in test cricket before that, right? Certainly not for yeah. the first ball. You, you'd get in for a little while, then you would start to attack um, or you would lose a wicket and you pair it back. Whereas what we had here was, you know, uh, as you said, then eventually Ishan Kishan coming in at number four, right? They, these mm. are things that are baseball inspired. In fact, I want to talk about one other thing about this just because this game made me, me mm. think about it. People have to stop saying things like, Oh, this is Saywag ball, or this is Gilchrist ball, <laughs> or this is Viv Richards ball, or this is um, uh, Keith Stackpole ball, that might, that, hmm. Chris Shrikanth ball, or whatever, right? <laughs> We've had attacking batters before. None of us are arguing that we haven't mm-hmm. had attacking batters before. If anything, if, you, if you're saying that line, that just means you don't know anything about the history of cricket, and what you really need to say is Gilbert Jessup ball or Victor Trumpet ball, because those are mm. the OGs when it comes to strike rates, right? In fact, I think when... I think at Old Trafford, the, or maybe it was, I can't remember if it was in the Ashes. Yeah, no, it must have been at Old Trafford. The quickest hundreds came up 
ever when when Bairstow was approaching his. I think this is right. Uh, and it was, I think the quickest one ever was maybe both them off 85 balls or something like that. And then uh, the second or third quickest ever was Victor Trumper off like 98 balls, right? Mm. In the early 1900s. He was so much quicker than anyone else was in that era, <laughs> other than Gilbert Jessup, who occasionally did the same sort of thing. So my, my point just being on all that is if, if you're going to go, oh, it's say white ball, at least know the, who the OG is, right? Let's, yeah. let's go back to the original source. But the difference is that now it's teams doing it en masse. So if you mm. have a look at that Indian second innings, you have Jaiswal, Rohit Sharma, and Ishan Kishan, all with strike rates over 120. Mm. That, if you if you uh, if you would think I'm wrong, go back and have a look at some of the highest scoring games of all time. Hmm. You don't see much of that. You see one batter yeah. or maybe two batters go nuts. This is something completely different. Um, also, Shubman Gill, what was he doing? Absolute hmm. slow coach needs to step on the accelerator. But but yeah, so I thought it was really interesting. I India maybe in the first innings probably batted a little bit slow. Tried to make up for it in the second innings, but you know, sadly. Uh, you know, Trinidad turned into Manchester and good luck. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting that you bring that up because I think this was also a bit situation-inspired because India aren't playing like this. They aren't going all baseball, right? They scored a three and a half runs and over in the first innings, but they had to go quickly because 350 is generally when teams feel a bit safe and they probably didn't feel safe with lesser runs than that, even though there's a case that they should have or could have because the West Indies haven't really put much of a fight, but they are putting up a fight now. And as we speak, the covers are off, so we might actually Ooh. have a game here. One more but, thing but I you want say to talk to you. You say it's situational. Here's why you're mm. wrong. Okay. Right? Because I've seen people, I've, that's what Crick Tracy John said, and, and uh, I think mm. a few other people have said stuff like that. The, the main reason you're wrong is everyone's attacking. Mm. Right? Again, that's not how it works. When it's, the, the, the difference with baseball is, the, um, is everyone going in. You're not just going with a couple of, um, uh, what, what fast-scoring players. Right? Mm. The other thing I would say is, and let me, I'm going to try and do this in real time, so I apologize to everyone who's listening in, but if you look at the history of cricket, so that that was 24 overs, I want to say. Does that, mm -hmm. that does that sound about right? I think so. Let me, I can... Oh, how, how many did you. they make? They made 180 odd. Okay. 181, I think. Yeah, 181. All right, so one, let's do 150, All right? So we look at any batting team of 150 and we'll do... I can't work out the overs right now, but I'll just, I'll just 24. There are 24 overs. I checked. Yeah. All right. So if you go innings by innings list and you have a look here, I'm just saying this out loud because I've just accidentally pressed the wrong button. Right. So hmm. if you look at runs per over of teams who've scored over 150 runs, that 7.54 is the fastest score ever in test hmm. cricket over 150 runs. Right, Australia in 2017 against Pakistan, 7.53 runs. Hmm. England versus Pakistan in Royal Pindi of uh, very recently. England versus Pakistan uh, is also uh, there's another one up there. Uh, then you've got um, then you've got just a bunch of England games of recent times. So hmm. uh, you know all these different uh, occasions where they've managed to do this and score hmm. well over. There are only, I'm just doing this off the top of my head, but there are only, and this is, remember, only a score of 150. We're not talking about a high score mm. here. My guess is that there's about 50 or 60 mm. score, uh, scores that are over five runs and over mm. for 150 runs in the history of Test Cricket. When you say it's situational, 
the situational thing has always been there. We've seen teams need to mm. score quickly for years, right? Mm. This isn't that. Teams are now using their white ball skills and they're pushing the foot down and they're giving people license in a way that didn't uh, you know, exist before. So, for instance, West Indies uh, versus India in, uh, what was that, Kingston in 1983 mm-hmm. uh, and Pakistan versus India. And I think both of those, if I'm not mistaken, were one was a fourth innings chase. And no, they were both fourth innings chases where you had to score really quickly. <laughs> Right, everything right. else, every, almost the rest of this entire list is from the 2000s, and most mm-hmm. of them are from the last five or six years. That isn't just baseball because mm-hmm. we have the white ball skills now, right? And right. those things come in, but certainly there's a shitload of England in this, so it mm. is very baseball inspired. Anyway, right? We, we have it's. I understand, especially as someone who comes from a you know a former colony, the idea that <laughs> a England are too boring to do any of this sort of stuff, and we don't want to give them any credit for any of this sort of stuff, but. These facts are facts. England mm-hmm. has changed the way that teams are looking at doing that. You're right. It was partly situational. But no mm-hmm. other team in that kind of situation has ever scored at that speed ever before, right? And, and we are we are seeing a change of what test cricket is right in front of our eyes. And it won't just be England, right? I mean, Pakistan mm-hmm. are doing crazy. What's going on? Shah Massoud, we need a drug yeah. test for Shah Massoud. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know we'll get to it in a little bit, but we need a drug test on that because that man is unlike anything that you and I had ever seen from Shah Massoud Mm -hmm. before, right? Test cricket is changing right in front of our eyes and it's not, it's not working. Oh, well, Seawagen, Viv Richards. Yeah. One player could play attacking beforehand. This is Mm -hmm. something else. Yeah, well, I'm just glad that in the same test, the India one, we're also getting to see Bratz ball, which is a proper throwback to the exactly. test cricket, proper that, cricket, you know, of yes, yesteryear. And uh, yeah, I mean, just one final thought on India and the West Indies, and we'll move forward to Sri Lanka versus Pakistan. Mohammad Siraj, he is without the services of his partners, Mohammad Shami and Jaspreet Bumrah. He is the leading man and he took a fifer. How have you seen him progress in, you know, international cricket? Because his rise has been quite notable. And I think he's done a very, very good job holding the fort for India. Yeah, he, he had that period where he first came in and I thought he was fantastic. And then he probably just hit a bit of a wall for a little while. And mm-hmm. and look, Indian seamers, that can happen. You get on a couple of pitches that aren't suited to you. Maybe you don't bowl as much as you should. You know, all mm-hmm. these different things can happen to those bowlers. When he came in, I think he was very raw and very talented. And the thing that I've noticed that is different about him now is how smart he is. And you mm-hmm. watch him bowl. Uh, and so, um, uh, I'm trying to remember. Wait, just let me look at my phone because someone sent me something really cool <laughs> about this. Uh, sure. In the second innings, in the second innings, he changed. Um, oh, Ari sent me this, who, who helps out on the channel sometimes. He sent mm-hmm. me the, uh, the thing of where in the second innings uh, of the game, he bowled very, very close to to the stumps or closer than he maybe normally would. And the fourth innings, he went a lot wider. This is from Crickfitz. When he first came into cricket, he was a raw, talented, skillful, you know, he had incredible hands and he had good speed Mm. and everything else. What we are starting to see that is matched up with the ability to change his position on the crease, the ability Mm. to bowl multiple different deliveries, uh, think batters out in a way that I think before he was one of those guys whose best ball was so good that he didn't have to worry about any of that. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're talking about a player who doesn't, when I first watched him play, didn't know the LBW law. Right. And we are watching in three years, let's say four years, whatever, whatever that period is him become an incredibly smart bowler. 
And so for me, it's a really exciting thing to see someone, you know, I, I, it was very similar to what we saw with Amrit Nokia. First time I saw Amrit mm-hmm. Nokia was, I think it was against you, um, you lot. Was it in Pakistan? I think he might yeah, have Yeah, I mean, he did play that series for sure. Yeah. Lots of success as well. This ball dead straight, but at 93 mm-hmm. miles an hour. And I was like, well, that's great, right? And we've seen Mark would be very successful at that. Mm-hmm. But what, what can he do next? And every time I saw Amrit Nokia, I was like, oh my God, he's got a new toy right yeah and so one thing i've noticed with the very fast bowls of recent times is we have managed to keep their pace but with toys like mark wood had an outswinger recently mm. right and yeah. we are seeing these bowlers upskill in a way that shell Bakhtar and sean tate and even brett lee didn't necessarily upskill they were very very talented bowlers and they were talented mm-hmm. bowlers all the way through but you didn't it wasn't like every season they came back with a new delivery that's not slandering them Right, because that's generally how cricket was in those days. You you had mm-hmm. your thing you were very very good at, and you made it work on every different surface, or you got drops because you couldn't do that. Or you learned how to reverse it. There was that. Yeah, but even even that was, I mean, reverse is great, but essentially it's someone else doing the fixing the ball for you, mm-hmm. right? Like, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not yeah. saying that the bowlers don't play a part in it because that we know there are certain bowlers that do, but it's not quite the same as you know. We, we just watched Mitchell Stark. Uh, to last Ashes, he's bowling. He, he's lose. He can't swing the ball properly anymore. Mm-hmm. He's trying to bowl the conventional wobble ball. It almost ruined his entire career. He comes back now. He's swinging the ball properly again, and he's bowling the three quarter seam wobble ball, which doesn't mm-hmm. ruin your wrists as much as the other one does. And it's right. like that is a huge jump up, right? As mm-hmm. I said with Nokia, putting all these different things in. Part of it is because there are more deliveries to bowl now than there ever have been mm-hmm. before. The other part is they can see these guys. They go on their NV Play app or their Sports Mechanics app or you know whichever company that their, their cricket board is with. They can see every ball in the world. They can see it from close up from behind. They Sometimes if they're lucky, they can see it from close up in front. They can watch Jimmy Anderson bowl again and again and again. I mean, how did Jimmy Anderson lose, uh, learn the wobble ball? He watched Muhammad Asif in the Nets, right? Right. We are now at the stage where you know, we have that. And it's really exciting. And I think that Mohammed Siraj is certainly someone who's benefiting from that. I think if he played in a previous era, he, he might still have been a really good bowler, but I'm not sure he would have evolved with the game in the way that he has mm. now. Yeah, fair enough. And I 100% concur that you have to continue to upskill and innovate and add certain things to your game and improve your arsenal and all of that stuff to become a more successful bowler. But anyway, I think that's enough for India versus the West Indies. We'll come back with Sri Lanka versus Pakistan. This is the Uncovered Podcast with Behram Kazi and Jared Kimber. We'll see you shortly after the ad. <laughs> Funny ad over there. And I mean, I do own a knockoff Manscaped, so I'll definitely recommend that. If I ever get thing. an extra one, I will send it to you <laughs> because I, I would be, I'd feel bad if your pubic area didn't have the official <laughs> licensed product of this podcast but i only have one and i don't think you want my seconds yeah plus uh you know i'm not a big fan of nicks right not in cricket not in the manscape area of things so yeah there's that but anyway pakistan versus sri lanka now pakistan won the first test at goal by four Mm. wickets a historic win for pakistan and as you mentioned in this podcast before one of the hallmarks of that victory was pakistan's approach now we've seen a lot of terms come up on crick info they've said park ball some people have said brad ball bar ball barber ball it's all rubbish because Pakistan, in their PCB podcast, have called it the Pakistan way. They had announced this approach prior to actually, you know, trying it out in, well, test cricket at least. And it's worked really well because it's a little different to out-and-out attack. They pick their battles wisely. It's very matchup driven. And it's, you know, different phases of the game require different sort of skill sets. So they will have periods where they just ro- focus on rotating strike and soaking in the pressure. And then they'll target certain bowlers and just go after them. So I'm not sure how much of this test you've caught, but what's your take on the Pakistan way? 
I I've really struggled with this test series just because mm. it's the wrong hours and mm-hmm. uh, it's been up against. So I've seen a lot more of India West Indies West Indies test matches. I generally watch a lot just because of the time zone, um, and then the rain. Uh, um, in in England, helped me watch some of it. Although at one stage it was raining in both places, and I basically mm. threw my iPad at the window at that point. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think it's slightly different. I, I don't think it's as different. If if you go back and you have a look at my piece on the baseball shuffle, you'll notice that I mentioned that the Pakistani batters were batting yeah. out of their crease quite a bit. So I do think they've taken a lot from baseball, and I think that baseball at its heart is very. You know, one of the things that we don't, we, we kind of talk about the aggression and the macho-ness and all the nonsense about it, but there are little bits that make a lot of sense. And one is that it, basically what England tried to do in that first baseball series was go, we don't think that uh, New Zealand have four bowlers that we need to worry about. So if we can knock one of those bowls away, we will tie the other bowls, and by the end of the series, we will have an advantage. And then by the end of the series, New Zealanders were getting injured left, right, and center. Colin de Grandhomme had basically retired. Carl Jameson wasn't playing. And they were playing Michael Bracewell as a frontline bowler. And England were like, great. We will absolutely <laughs> destroy this. So what Pakistan is doing is very similar to that style. So again, mm-hmm. it, it is inspired by it. But it, this is this is what I... I remember when people said, everyone's going to try basketball. And I went, no, because teams don't have basketball lineups. England is the right. best white ball lineup in the world. But you look at what Pakistan is doing and you look at... You know, guys like Safraz and Barbara Azam, mm-hmm. they can score. And, and you know, Rizwan is not uh, involved, but Rizwan is a really another a good example of this. Those guys mm-hmm. can score at around five, five and a half runs and over without taking any yeah. risk. I mean, that's what we're complaining about, right? <laughs> that they won't, that Barbara and Rizwan won't take any risk. And I think Pakistan has a few different players. You know, Imam is probably another one uh, on that kind of uh, on that kind of list. Sean mm-hmm. Masood, I don't know what's going on with him. As I said, we're gonna have, I'm gonna have to leave Sean. Would you I'm say that to... he's like the Pakistani Zach Crawley? Very, very similar numbers as well. <laughs> he's well. I mean, they both have very from very wealthy families as well. Yeah, um, as well. I, I mean, that, I know, I know, I know. That's a bit of a throwaway line, but that is actually a very good reason why they um, are where they are. And I don't mean that in a bad way. But what it shows you is, if you take a decent athlete who has a bit of flaw, and you actually pair that with professional system look at Sharma hmm. Suits talk to every sports science person analytics person he's got quick viz on speed dial right like he's <laughs> probably looking at every footage of every bowler before he goes out Zach Crawley his dad take him around the world you're gonna learn how to play spin you're gonna learn how to face the short ball you're gonna you know get you're gonna get hit on the body by um by our own personal bowling machine at home I don't know if they had a personal bowling machine at home I'm assuming <laughs> they do he, he feels like the kind of kid that would add a bowling machine at home um, you know, and I would like a bowling machine. Andy Zoltzman has a bowling machine, so I'm not slaying off um, his son um, in this, although I can. Um, <laughs> but but the the point is that you know we th- those sorts of guys they do have an advantage, and it works, right? Zach Crawley yeah. and Sean Masood, if they came from normal, you know, backgrounds, even just normal middle class backgrounds, they wouldn't be playing at this level. So it shows you how money does make a difference. But yeah, mm. I'm going to keep Sean away. But the, but the point is that. In Pakistan's case, probably it's not going to be the big boom that we saw from England. Hmm. But Pakistan is a team over the last couple of years that has given us a lot of players who could probably score between four and a half and five and a half runs and over uh, right. without taking any major risks. And now hmm. you're just like, well, wait a minute. 
it's, it is the Pakistan way, right? And, you know, we have to come up with a better name than that because the Pakistan way <laughs> sounds like a really bad a tourist program that I would never want to watch. But the point I, is... I like that, Bobby Ball, but apparently Bobby Ball was a comedian in the UK. So we can't Bobby use Ball. that. Um, yeah, it can't be Baba Ball, can it? Yeah, it's it's too... I don't know. It's kind of a tongue twister. Yeah, so but I like Baba nice Ball. I like it. It's, 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 it's like a... It's like, um, it, it's like one of the, like a toy that you can get somewhere, but the toy doesn't work very well. Um, but yeah, so I, whatever name it comes, we come up with, and uh, you know, mm. eventually settle on. And it's very important. I need to tell you as part of the Pakistani uh, press corps, don't accept what a cricket board says. Do you remember the cricket board <laughs> were fighting baseball forever, and they wanted all these other? Di- no, 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 no. We picked baseball. We're not saying it's perfect. Andrew Miller came up with it on a whim. Right, mm. but it's it sums up so many different things that allows us to do our jobs easier, and that's mm. what that's what fans and media really want. Um, so so yeah, from that perspective, uh, it needs a better name. But I understand what they're doing. Um, I, I haven't seen enough of it, and I would love to see more and more. But they're playing fantastic cricket in the in this series. There's one other thing I want to add, just because there's no way you'll bring this up. Do you mm-hmm. did you ha, do you know how many runouts have been in the Ashes so far? Hmm. Zero? Yeah. So hmm. Bearstow's closest, of yeah. course. Not quite a run out, but almost a run out. Um, uh, and uh, I thought it was hilarious watching um, Sri Lanka have two run outs in their opening innings at home mm-hmm. in a test match to help Pakistan there. But just pointing it out, I think there's only been one Ashes series ever. Uh, and I think it's the only five match um, test series mm-hmm. ever that's never had a run out. So that's fun for the Ashes, but also mm-hmm. more fun that Sri Lanka managed to get two in their opening innings yeah. and get bowled out for 166. And Sean Masood was responsible for both those runouts. So not only did he score a quick 550, he did that as well. So yeah, great time to be Sean Masood. And I didn't see that. I the... saw the first one. <laughs> I didn't realize he got both of them. He's on fire. Yeah, yeah. The second one was really funny as well, actually. It was like in slow-mo. But uh, I think this is quite the plot twist for a team that was being berated a lot for its lack of intent, yeah. uh, per se. And I think... Two people who are really, really, you know, must be praised over here are Saud Shakil and Salman Ali Aga because the way they took the attacker Prabha Jaisuriya, unsettled mm. his lengths and disturbed him, I think that was where the main battle was won for Pakistan. And Saud is really sweeping the ball well as well. And after maybe Yunus Khan and to an extent Sarfaraz, I don't think Pakistan has had many good sweepers off the ball. And Maybe, you know, today when Abdullah and Shan were batting, they didn't sweep as frequently, but they definitely took a leaf out of Saud and Salman's book with respect to playing Prabhaja Surya. So I think that was quite a big one. But Saud Shakil in general, you know, six matches that he's played now, he's scored, what, racked up 818 runs. He's got uh, in 12 innings, I believe, five uh, half centuries and uh, one double and then one century as well. And then he looks compact, plays the ball late. Like I said, good sweeper. He's got a lot of good things going for him. And after six matches, only Sunil Gavaskar and the Don have more runs. So he finds himself in quite esteemed company. But I'm not telling you all of this to talk about South Shaquille. The fact that by this time next year, South Shaquille will have only played 10 test matches. Do you think that's good for the game or at least good for South? Not at all, right? Uh, I mean, if I was him, I'd want to play about 20 test matches uh, yeah. at the moment, right? I mean, that's that's the thing with form. I, I wonder mm. this a lot with test cricket, and it's something we'll never be able to measure. Um, the only mm. way really looking at it would be in the old days when you had first-class cricket. But you do wonder if sometimes like t- players, when they reach their peak, maybe maybe their peak is 28 to 31, right? Mm. And in that three-year period, what if, what if their team doesn't play as many tests, yeah. right? And they... But the four years before that, their team played a bunch of tests and they weren't informed. Mm. These things matter, right? Like, you know, he's seeing the ball great. He wants to face it in as many different places as possible. We don't know how his game is going to 
transfer to other places as much because we haven't seen as much of him. If he's going to want to go, it's going to want to be when he's making runs everywhere, right? You, you, yeah. He doesn't want to suddenly start failing and then have to go, you know, on New Zealand on a on a green top or you know, go to West Indies on a on a you know with the Duke's ball curving around sideways. So I, I think from that perspective, it, you're informed you want to play as much cricket as possible. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I sure hope that the PCB definitely schedules some maybe some test series outside the FTP, like play Afghanistan or Ireland or someone. Just get you guys to play test cricket because players like Salman Aliaga, oh well, he is also in the ODI squad, but South Shaquille in particular. This guy is only 27 right now. You don't want him to be retiring with 40 tests under his belt. You don't want that. You want this guy to be able to get a lot of game time so that he can chart out a career. But, the other uh, way of looking at that is if he, have, if he plays 40 tests and they don't play that often, he might end up with a batting average of like 55. And, yeah. you know, sometimes some, the batting average is the most important thing. I think we can all agree. Yeah, yeah. And he averages close to 100 right now. So let's yeah. see how long he can keep that up. Pakistan's fielding, uh, catching in particular, and then the runouts, it's been spot, spotless, really. I, I don't think they've made any mistake, barring like one at short leg, which was like half a chance. Not very usual for a Pakistani team, but Mickey Arthur, last time he was in charge and Steve Rickson was the bowling coach, or sorry, fielding coach. Pakistan saw a similar sort of rejuvenation in the field. Do you think that maybe there's some correlation between Mickey and how well Pakistan does in the field? I think different coaches have different outlooks. Mm. And, you know, some of it's probably just luck and regression and, and the kinds of players you pick. You know, there mm. are teams that field really well because they, um, you know, their best 11 players are all good fielders, right? Mm. And you can fix that. And, and uh, well, you can't really change that if you're, you're a team that doesn't have that those kinds of skills. Mm. I think cricketers feel that well, cricket coaches feel that cricket, that fielding is something that you can improve. I always go back to the Imran Tahir um, example of, you know, when I first saw him play cricket, he looked like he didn't know how to stop a ball. Um, and by the end, he was quite a handy fielder for someone who was 45 years old. But mm. uh, So I do think it is something that you, you can probably improve. But different teams look at it differently. For instance, England aren't really fast mm. about fielding at the moment. And yeah. there are certainly people making the argument that that's a reason why they aren't they went down two 0 because they you know are not as sharp in the field as they should be. So, I, I it's a hard thing to judge because we it's easy to see how much practice people do on batting and bowling if you're mm. hanging around a team. Fielding's a bit tougher to actually you know work. how much time did this guy spend on this particular skill and everything else. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it could be it could be the uh, the Mickey bump, Brad <laughs> yeah, bump, perhaps. Brad Bump, or, or maybe we could call it Burn a Ball. Brad Burn, Burn a Ball. I don't know. Maybe that sounds like Build a Bear or something. Burn a Boy is a rapper, isn't he? Yeah, the, Burn a Boy is a rapper. Yeah, you're right. Um, something like that. But anyway, so one final thought. I mean, of course, I do want to throw my weight behind this that fielding, Pakistan's fielding in the series is one of the main reasons why they won at Gaul and why they find themselves in a, in a very, very good position uh, in this Colombo test as well. I mean, they're only 21 behind and have eight wickets in hand. So expect them to post a big lead or Pakistan, just like they always do and maybe end up with like a lead of 60. I don't know. Anything can happen. One final thought on this before we move forward. Naseem Shah came on to the scene back in 2019 as a 16-year-old and he went uh, to that or well, he was on that Australian tour, which Pakistanis would probably want to forget. That's how bad they were, particularly with the ball. But we've seen him really groom into one of those bowlers who keeps bowling that nagging length and keeps hitting that cor corridor of uncertainty. Very, very accurate in that regard. Also quite pacey. And then with the bat, he's a proper dead batter, right? He scored six of 78 in the first test match. 
put up 94 runs with Saud Shakil and ultimately helped Pakistan win. So how have you seen Naseem's progression as a teenager to now someone who looks more in his own skin on the international arena? Yeah, I think Pakistan's biggest issue is that they're always looking for the next 15-year-old who bowls 90 miles an hour and hits mm. sixes, right? And what... I, I've seen a similar thing in Australia. Australia and Pakistan are very similar in this whole idea that the next player has to be the absolute greatest player of all time. Whereas I think if you look at the history of Australia and Pakistan and cricket, there are a lot of, you know, middling players who are really good professionals for their teams mm. at times. If you're going to pick the teenagers, you can't get rid of them at the first sign of weakness. And he hasn't mm-hmm. shown a weakness, so maybe it's easier. But the ability to allow him to develop all these guys that you pick young and you say are very quick or, you know, someone like Mohammed Siraj, which is probably, it's mm. an Indian bowler, but more like a Pakistani story, you know, uh, the mm-hmm. way that he's coming through or a Sri Lankan story. But those guys do take time to develop, to become mm. professional cricketers. And someone's bowling with a tape ball somewhere and then bowls a couple of quick spells and you put them into a Pakistan team. What you have is someone with the basic skill set to be successful at international cricket. Mm. They don't know how to eat. They don't know how to sleep. They don't know how to train. They don't know how to travel. All the and it, it sounds stupid, right? How would they? Yeah, there's if absolutely it, no way. You are plucked out of junior cricket at best, right? Mm-hmm. And you're now in the senior level. It takes time, and I think for what we've seen with him is the development of a player, which is how these young players should be treated, and mm-hmm. he's been treated that way because he's. Five percent better than a lot of the other guys that have come through mm-hmm. that system. The the real you know test for Pakistan cricket going ahead is: do they actually do this for everyone, or do they just do it because you know he's Pat Cummins, right? Mm-hmm. And if they just do it because he's Pat Cummins, well, they'll end up with the Pakistani Pat Cummins, uh, which is also one of the burner boys, um, <laughs> and which is absolutely fantastic. But here's the here's the tip. If the, he could improve the way that he has as a cricketer professionally in all these little mini skills, soft skills that you were talking about, maybe other people could do it too if you treated them mm-hmm. correctly, right? Yeah. That's the difference. That is when you go from – that's the level that Australia got to, right, hmm. with their professionalism. And India and England have taken it to different levels. But if you look, look back at the Australian level, what did they do? They made sure that even when they didn't have the best players available – the other guys who were there who were a little bit flawed were upskilled enough that they could step in and there wasn't that much of a drop-off. At least maybe mm. even if you just pick them during their prime, right? You get yeah. Colin, Colin Miller in for his prime. You get Stuart McGill in for his prime. You get Mike Hussey in for their prime because they were professionals and they were ready when they were called up, right? Mm. That is what Pakistan cricket should be going towards. And if that's how I would be framing the Nassim um, story, which is look what we did for him. What if we did that with all the professionals? And when they came in, this is the other thing you need to do. When they come in, have them at a base level of professionalism. That, yeah. And I can promise you that's what Mickey Arthur wants to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, of course, it's a bit harder when it's a 16-year-old or however young Nassim was yeah. back then. But he's developing well. And this Pakistani unit, at least the team manager, Rayan Haq, he's done something similar at Islamabad United. Yeah. So we can only hope that more and more uh, similar stories will come out of Pakistan cricket because at least you have those guys back in the team just, management. Just on the on the sixteen year old thing, a mm-hmm. that's probably why you shouldn't pick sixteen year olds. Mm. But if you do, you need a separate system to know yeah. what they're going to need, right? So, I, as someone who travelled with, you know, um, uh, oh my god, I've forgotten his name, the Pakistani leg spinner, KS, KS Ahmed. No, no, he's Afghani, Afghani leg spinner. What did I say? 
Pakistan. Yeah, sorry, Afghanistani. When he first mm. traveled with us, he didn't know how to get through customs. Mm. Right? Yeah, lack of exposure is big, especially in these parts he, of the world. He didn't know where to go and get food. All these mm. little things, right? And sometimes the players take them under their wings. But I can tell you other times, the players are like, I don't want to deal with a 16-year-old. I'm a 30-year-old mm. professional. Why should I be right. dealing with a 16-year-old? Hire people to help this kid, right? <laughs> and I've had these conversations with players before. The point being at, it is, if you're going to pick players that young, think about it. Don't just pick them. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. But well, in this particular case, I guess Pakistan will fans will be happy. Anyway, we'll go to another break. Then we're going to quickly wrap up. We have two more topics. Won't take a lot of time. So yeah, I'm Baram. This is Jared. We'll be back with the Uncovered podcast after this ad. Welcome back to Uncovered. This is Behram Kazi and I tweeted Def Mango. So that's where you can find me on Twitter. And this is Jared Kimber. You can find him everywhere. Right then, Jared. Harman Breeth Kaur pulled off a Shakib, if I am putting it lightly. A Shakib. He, she, <laughs> yeah, yeah. She definitely did something similar to what Shakib did. Only this was an international game. Wasn't happy with the umpiring decision when she was given out. Smashed the stumps with her bat. And people, oh well, at least Smithy Mandana said that it was a, you know... Uh, Russia blood, heat of the moment sort of thing. Well, it carried on. And yeah. uh, she basically, you know, voiced that dissent in the pros post-match presser, or well, the post-match interview rather, where the presenter wasn't particularly doing his job to the best of his abilities either. I'll, I'll give her that. But it was really inexcusable because then when you go on to see footage of when they were taking that team photo, because the trophy was shared, right? 1-1 yeah. between Bangladesh and India. And Bangladesh also won one of the T20s. So India didn't have the best of tours. Maybe that was weighing in on her mind. But then she taunted the Bangladeshi captain, asked her if she wants to call the umpires or not, and basically offended the entire Bangladeshi team to opt out of the photo. Now, mm. for someone uh, like Harman Preet Kaur, the Ha monster, as we so often call her, she is an ambassador for the sport at large and someone who a lot of people look up to, particularly young People. So, I mean, it's quite despicable, at least from my lens. And I'd like to see what your thoughts are regarding all of this. Yeah, uh, the hitting the stumps, players do bad things when, mm. you know, th these things happen sometimes. It was a stupid thing. Also, it wasn't quite in the heat of the moment. If you watch, there's like a, there's mm. a bit of a delay, um, mm. but not the end of the world. Um, the stuff that she said to Bangladesh, game's over, mm. like. Get over it. Uh, the, as you said, the, the, the press thing. Look, I, she's a human being and she's mm. going to make mistakes. And I'm sure that there have been times when you've been rude to a waiter because you're having a shit time somewhere and you mm. think to yourself, like, I probably shouldn't have been that shit to that waiter or that, you know, that Uber driver or whatever it may be. Like, we all do it. The difference is that they do it on a major level and it goes back. Mm -hmm. So, I would like to think that she will apologize. She will come out and own her mistakes and hopefully try and go forward in the future. But I haven't seen multiple occurrences where I'm like, oh, well, now she's a bad role model. She mm -hmm. had a shit day. Don't get me wrong. And it's not, you know, but there's a difference between being a bad role model, which is you're consistently doing stuff like that and you get mm -hmm. known for doing that sort of stuff. And there's, I had a bad day and things went against me, but she still has to apologize for it. Like that, you know, some of the stuff that she did, the stumps, she, I don't care about. She apologized mm. for the stumps. But what she said to the Bangladesh team is pathetic. Even yeah. if she thought it. And do you know how many players think this? Every player thinks this. There's mm. a great line. I reckon it's a conversation, I want to say, between Richie Benno and Don Bradman. I think, I think I've got the two people right. Mm. It's certainly Don Bradman. And someone says to Don Bradman, is it true that, you know, is it true that most of the time teams complain about umpiring when they lose? 
And Don Bradman says, oh, no, that's not true. It's all mm. of the time. It's not most of the time. <laughs> right? And it, it is the case. I've, I've worked with teams where we've had the shockers go against us, right? Mm. And we've won the game and no one talks about it afterwards. And I've worked in games where marginal ones have gone against us. And at the end, mm. everyone's like, how are, we, how are we supposed to win? I, <laughs> I tell you, so many times I've worked with teams, and, and, and this is in amateur cricket as well. When you play cricket in amateur level, everyone's like, oh, this umpire hates us. Just shut up and play the game. And yeah, so I can I, tell I, you a fair few occurrences as a Pakistan supporter where everyone's just going off at the umpire. I believe oh. David Shepard, Daryl Hare, there were lots of those stories growing up and you almost like were brainwashed or convinced into thinking that, yes, there is some sort of agenda at play. But really, I mean, these sort of things happen, right? The umpires are humans too. Yeah. Unless, of course, yeah, you, and, you go to court. And uh, sometimes like what Dal happens... Well, Daryl Hare is an example of probably an umpire that had yeah. more biases than most and shouldn't uh-huh. have got to the level that he did. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what, go and have a look at some of that old Pakistani footage and have a look at yeah. their umpires, right? And the Kurana. Australian umpires, absolutely dreadful. New Zealand umpires. Yeah, there's a, there was a few pretty bad umpires there. Does bad umpiring happen? Yes. Have we got to a point, though, where umpiring is better than it's ever been before? Without question. Umpiring mm-hmm. is so much better than it's ever been before. But Harmanpreet doesn't know about Rana and, and um, yeah. what's his name? Was it Fred? Daryl Hare. No, there's a there's a famous one in New Zealand who was the one that annoyed oh. all the West Indians. I forget his name. But, you know, she doesn't know that. So in her world, she's been wrong. Fine. Now you come out and you say, I made a mistake. ICC's original punishment made them look like idiots, um, looked like they weren't taking it seriously. Uh, they've now, I think it, it looks like it's, she's going to be a two-match suspension. Yeah, I heard four demerit points and 75% from match fee. I haven't heard anything about suspensions yet. I think that was the original, but let me just have Mm -hmm. a look. Um, Crick Info put up two two hours ago that she's Mm -hmm. likely to be banned for two matches. Mm. Um, You have to suspend. I'm not going to spend, I'm going to spend the rest of my life going, you know, um, uh, you know, Harman Preet is is evil or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But what I would say is that, you do have to suspend her. That That is part of what has happened. But mm. the ICC brings all this on themselves because they weren't neutral umpires, right? Yeah. And uh, I don't know what the quality of umpiring was in that particular game. The co- quality of the footage wasn't particularly good. So mm-hmm. um, it didn't look <laughs> like the most professional setup I've ever seen when I was watching clips of that game or those game, that series. Um, so from that point of view, who knows what the quality of the umpiring was. But that doesn't matter because I could tell you that every professional cricketer, by the time they get to the top level, is dealing with better umpires than they have probably ever dealt with all the way through the game. She is ha- Harman Preet. By the time we knew ha- who Harman Preet's name was, she had been sawed off for middling a ball. <laughs> she had had LBW so plumb that the batter had probably stood on the stumps not given out, right? Yeah. Everything happens to cricketers all the time. It's part of dealing with the game, right? As you said before, yeah. they are just human. Whether they're neutral or independent, they're just they're it's just part of the game, right? And there is if you can't handle that, and and the way that she did it, I think was really disappointing. And I say that as someone who's a huge fan of her and her mm-hmm. impact on women's cricket. But as I said, it's a shit day. 
We've all had them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. And I mean, a suspension sounds about right. And I'm pretty sure that she must have apologized or something of the sort must have happened. And there was this really interesting tweet I read in which someone said that had Kagiso Rabada done this, he would be in jail or something. So well, <laughs> he, he was certainly the guy that got the most unlucky. Thing. I mean, it's him. Uh, he had the most unlucky stuff, but in the same team, Faf mm. got the luckiest stuff I've ever seen for yeah. ball tampering and everything else. So, yeah, no, Rabada. Was it like Rabada, like, if he got near a player at one stage, mm. he was getting yeah. done. It was absolutely ridiculous what was going on with him. Yeah, yeah, it was said that he was invading someone's personal space by being like a meter away from them. So, yeah, that was a bit ludicrous. Anyway, emerging Asia Cup, Pakistan A defeated India in the final. A very commanding victory for Mohammad Harris and his boys. Now, there's a bit of controversy that came up with respect to this. And that's what I want to, well, talk to you about. There were a lot of people complaining that, hey, the guy who scored 108 of 71 deliveries, Tayyip Tahir, for Pakistan is almost 30. And then you've got a couple of capped players in Saim Ayub and Mohammad Haris, Wasim Jr. The Hani wasn't playing this game, but he was in the squad as well. Now, this is the A team. This is not an under-19 tournament. I don't know where it specifies that there is an age limit over here. I don't know why a lot of fans or, or people thought that this was maybe an under-23 tournament because it wasn't. And you have to play your second best 11. That's what an A team means to me, at least. So, what do you make of all of that? Uh, I mean, that's like Piers Morgan <laughs> talking about puddles, right? I mean, it's 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 obviously nonsense. I, I th- what I thought was great was people were watching it. I actually would have loved mm. to have watched it myself. It's, it's mm. weirdly enough. I've said this before. If I've had the chance, if if there was proper A team being played all around the world, I'd probably cover that rather than the majors, mm. uh, just because I would find that even more interesting. Um, uh, so I love that people were watching it. But yeah, at 18, you can have a 38-year-old drunkard with one leg if you want it to. Yeah. It's, also, it's why can't a look at it. 30-year-old be an emerging player? Could he not have started late? You know, Tayyip Tahir did start late. So why can't he be an emerging player? There's no written rule. So if you, you look at some of the New Zealand and, and Zimbabwe, because New Zealand and Zimbabwe are two teams that usually have very experienced 18. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. you see some other teams go another way. And it, it's, it's really down to strategy, right? Like of... Mm where your team is, who you're trying to develop at that one time. I remember there was an A team that Australia had and some of the, there was like two senior players on it and a bunch of like kids. And the senior players were saying to me, uh, we don't have a, we don't have six batters and we don't have four bowlers in this side. We have a couple of project players. We have a couple (laughs) of players who aren't suited to these conditions, you know, all these sorts of things. And I was like, well, what's the A team, right? Yeah what it is they've decided that they want to give these kids experience and you know there was other reasons to take people away so and yeah I, if I india think- decided to play their under 23 team there are two facets to this one india has a super talented sort of roster at the back all of these kids are already mm-hmm. playing the ipl and stuff abhishek sharma and sai sudarshan have been quite successful in the ipl even even raj vardhan hunger gaker is a real talent so if you are going for an under 23 team that is your choice and it's good for you. Yeah. But you can't be coming out and blaming other teams for playing a 30-year-old. No. I mean, as you said, everyone develops differently. Um, from mm-hmm. that. And, and you don't know why he's in that tournament, right? Like, yeah. it's this is the stupid thing. It doesn't matter who wins that tournament. Who's yeah. going to remember that in, like, three weeks' time? It's such a stupid thing to care about, mm. right? Just block Piers Morgan, right? <laughs> and watch an A-team play as an A-team without getting... Mm. I, I, I think... Maybe because of the quality of the cricket or whatever it was, but people got sucked into that tournament. As I said, I actually mm. think that's a good thing. But yeah. remember what it is, right? Mm. It's like the under 19 World Cup. There yeah. are some teams who send players out before they're ready to the under 19 World Cup 
because they specifically think this guy is definitely going to play for us in a couple of years. If we can get him two World Cup cycles, he'll know what it's like to be in an ICC event. You know, even if he doesn't play in the first one, all this sort of stuff. We'll start to see with the women happening as well. You know, all these sorts of things. But remember, there were people who complained at the Women's Under-19 World Cup that there were senior Indian players in the team as well. And you're just like, that doesn't stop them from being under-19, right? Yeah. And, and so every team has a different outlook on that. Enjoy the cricket. Which, mm. you know, when it's, do you know how hard it is to play cricket in the modern world with all this rain? Just enjoy it when you can. <laughs> On that note, I think we will end this and we can only hope that over in Trinidad, you know, the rain ends and we can at least get like some cricket over there. But that's all from episode 42 of The Uncovered. This is Behram Kazi. You can find me at Def Mango on Twitter. That's Jared Kimber. You can find him everywhere. And that's all for this episode. We'll catch you again next week. Thanks for joining. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version via Patreon, where there are many other extras as well, including a Discord channel. There's a link to those in the show notes. Please review, subscribe, and tell all your friends about our show. Word of mouth is the best way of making our podcast grow. If we had a guest on, chances are their socials are in the show notes. Please support everyone who comes on this show. I am Jared Kimber, and this is my network. But we also have hosts and co-hosts like Barat Sundaresan and Bayram Kazi. This network is overseen by Nick McCorriston. Each episode is produced by Ishit Kuberka at Sound Potion Studio. The team for 42 help us out with the video side. Orajoti, Saina Pai, and Maida Akam, both producing podcasts, while Makunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube content. Podcast Network.